Well, welcome back. I feel the need to reassure you that they get easier from here on out, or so I've been told. Progressively, so. Well, as promised, we return now to the particular subject of intellectualism and voluntarism, two opposing historical schools of thought regarding the precise relationship between the intellect and the will, and particularly as it, as it um, speaks to the, to, to the very issue of free choice itself. Before we dive into this, let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Pray with me. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we pray that as we can give due consideration to these very difficult things and sometimes uh, very often very abstract um, concepts and ideas, we pray that you would um, give to us understanding not only of the things that we are talking about, discussing, and the arguments and um, things that are presented as such, but give to us even a greater understanding of our own selves, of our own souls and the inner working and, and of our own experience um, as we think about um, the relationship of our will to our intellect, to, to the choices that we make and, um, and our, our reasoning biblically or, or not at times. Uh, help us to understand ourselves a little bit better as we progress through this material. Help us to appreciate and understand the, the grace of God that has been uh, so wonderfully infused into our hearts by, by the Holy Spirit and by virtue of Christ. Um, help us to, to give glory to, to him, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so I've titled this lecture, Intellectualism, Voluntarism, and the Reformed Tradition. As it concerns the medieval sources that, that influenced the development of Reformed theology in general, Thomas Aquinas and John Duns Scotus are the two most prominent influences, uh, and, and sometimes very often in very different ways. We've already considered Thomas, and I've already suggested that he cannot be reduced to really either of these trajectories, intellectualism or, or voluntarism, that we're going to talk about now. But it is accurate to say that Duns Scotus is a voluntarist. And his view is necessary for us to consider if we're to ask the question of where the Reformed tradition falls within these two uh, historical trajectories. And so I aim to show, in the end, I aim to show that the Reformed tradition, though clearly more intellectualist than voluntarist, even associating the uh, voluntaristic tendency with Arminians and Pelagians, Socinians and the like. Even so, the Reformed tradition might be better characterized by Thomas's middle way. This will be my, my argument. In order to show this, I'll give a brief history of how these two opposing views, intellectualism and voluntarism, came to be historically. We'll spend some time trying to understand the uh, voluntarism of Duns Scotus in particular on its own terms. And this will take the, really the bulk of our time, but we'll conclude with a consideration of where 
the reformed tradition generally falls in relation to these issues. Okay, that being said, we need to begin again with our working definition of, of well, of intellectualism and voluntarism, but, but as well, let's review even something of our definition of, of free choice. We, we've said that, that freedom or power of acting upon choice requires two things, right? Spontaneity of act and the act of the will and the contingency of its chosen course of action. So free from a necessity of coercion and of nature. We also said that it involves four things. Right? A field first, a field of action that uh, entails more than one possibility wherein a choice uh, between alternatives is made possible. And then in order to have alternatives to choose between, secondly, there must be an intellect that is simultaneously able to know a thing and its opposite and, and able to reason and deliberate about the relative desirability of both alternatives. And then thirdly, in order to freely and contingently choose between the alternatives as they are presented by the intellect, there must also be a will that is not by any necessity of nature passively and automatically determined to one course of action by the judgment of the intellect. And that such contingency then fourthly presupposes that the will is an active potency that is to some degree able to move itself or act spontaneously of its own accord. And it is precisely this last statement that was most debated among so-called intellectualists and voluntarists. Intellectualism and voluntarism, therefore, to refer to two opposing ways of understanding the relationship, the order of relations between the intellect and the will, or the cognitive and the volitional faculties of the soul, respectively, and, and more particularly as it relates to the very act of free choice itself. So there are different ways of answering the question regarding what grounds our freedom to choose between alternative possibilities, whether it be the intellect or it be principally the will that grounds our freedom to choose between alternative possibilities, and especially whether and to what extent the will moves itself or is moved by the intellect. It is also important to understand that the difference between these two trajectories is not reducible, is not reducible to a mere emphasis or emphasis upon one faculty or another. From a certain perspective, Thomas himself emphasizes the role of the intellect. And so some refer to him as an intellectualist but from another respect, he ascribes a prominent active role to the will, and so some have even argued that he is a voluntarist. That's a stretch, but they have. I would maintain that Thomas fits into neither category when they are carefully defined. Uh, Tobias Hoffman <clears throat> helpfully remarks that an author may, or theologians of the past may, for instance, have both intellectualist and voluntarist tendencies in different respects, or emphases in different respects. Or, like Thomas, 
may consider the activities of intellect and will as so intertwined that these classifications become useless. Moreover, intellectualism and voluntarism cannot be reduced to the issue of whether the intellect or the will have priority in the order of operation, because most everyone agrees that the intellect has a certain kind of priority. So what, what does the difference here come down to? The difference comes down to this. Intellectualism, properly so-called, maintains that the will is a passive rather than active power that is wholly dependent upon and must slavishly submit to the last judgment of the practical intellect. And so the will is free in its choice for, for the intellectualist. It is free in its choice, but only in the particular sense that the intellect is free to reason about and deliberate between alternative possibilities. The voluntarist, the voluntarism, however, maintains that the will is an active rather than passive power that not only moves itself, but is also not determined by the intellect in any real way and is even free to choose contrary to the last judgment of the practical intellect. Now consider with me the historical genealogy of these two of these two uh, theological trajectories. So the rise of intellectualism and voluntarism. <clears throat> these two uh, divergent views, opposing views, arose at a time when the debates over how to articulate the relation of the intellect to the will in relation to human agency in particular was at an all-time high. So from the late let's say 1260s to the early 1300s. So before the 1270s, and just as a reference point here, Thomas died in 1274, whereas Scotus was of the next generation and he died in 1308. But before the 1270s, the discussion revolved around liberium arbitrium, in other words, free choice, and most agreed with Peter Lombard's formula that free choice is a, quote, power of reason and will. In other words, in some way, a joint act of both, of both the intellect and the will, as we saw in, Tom, in Thomas, though Thomas works it out in a very uh, precise way. Uh, Lombard believed that he got this view, uh, inherited this view from Augustine, at least in its general form. So the focus was on liberium arbitrium, free choice as a joint act of intellect and will. But at some point in the late 1270s, the discussion narrowed and became revolved around voluntas libera, the freedom of the will itself. And so the focus then became more narrowly upon the will itself. And it, became, the focus increasingly became whether the intellect or the will itself is ultimately responsible for man's freedom to choose. In the year 1277, a series of condemnations were published by Stephen Tempier, Temp, French, Tempier, 
Tempier, I think. Tempier, we'll go with that. Uh, the Bishop of Paris, he issued um, condemnations in 1277, and among the views condemned was the extreme intellectualism of Seeger of Barbant, namely that free will is a passive power. It is passive, the act of which is necessitated by the object of desire that is presented to it by the intellect. Seeger argued that the necessity placed upon the will does not impair the will's freedom because it is not an absolute necessity. He says it's a consequent necessity that is in consequence of the intellect's free practical deliberation. And so he argues that the freedom of the intellect to deliberate entirely and sufficiently establishes the freedom of the will, though he maintained that the will itself is passively determined by the intellect's rational deliberation. These were, this was a view that was condemned in, in that context in, in, in Paris um, in 1277. Tempier disagreed, the Bishop of Paris disagreed, and he and 16 others disagreed with Seeger and his intellectualism. And so 16 uh, men, theologians, uh, came together, deliberated, and published a declaration of condemnation, condemnation of, uh, of other things, but including this, of any view that reduced the act of the will to a form of necessity or a form of determinism that made the will strictly dependent upon the judgment of the intellect and therefore unable to choose the lesser of two goods that are presented to it. And this sparked an intense time of debate about whether freedom is principally rooted in the intellect or in the will, and it caused the pendulum to swing more readily to the other extreme, giving rise to this Voluntarism, in fact, giving rise uh, first, in the first place, historically to the voluntarism of Henry of Ghent. And this, in turn, gave rise to the criticism of Godfrey Fontaine, who himself had been influenced by Thomas, but his view was not that of Thomas. Rather, it was a clear case of intellectualism that again reduced the will to a passive power, arguing that nothing, including the will, can be its own self-mover. And so it must be altogether determined, it's the way he applied that, altogether determined by the intellect. Just as an aside, even Thomas, again, affirmed that the will cannot move itself, absolutely speaking, but it has, it has to be set in motion by the intellect. However, once it is set in motion, he maintained that it possesses its own active power, active principle of motion to move itself in its own acts. Um, Godfrey was not as nuanced and, um, and turned it into a passive, altogether passive power. In any case, here is the brief historical point that I want to make as we approach the view of Duns Scotus. Voluntarism arose in a particular historical context that was not precipitated by Thomas or even especially in relation to or in dialogue with Thomas's particular view at all. And I think this is significant 
because Thomas and Scotus are often compared and contrasted as though they were interacting with and disagreeing with one another, when in fact, they were having entirely different conversations precipitated by very different historical circumstances or situations, contexts. You see this with Scotus's doctrine of univocity, the univocity of being, wherein he is interacting not with Thomas's doctrine of analogy, but with Henry of Ghent, who had already taken the conversation in a very, very different direction. And you see the same thing happening here with respect to the matter of the will. The subtleties and the complexities of Thomas's position seem to be largely, largely lost in the background as Scotus reacts not to the view of Thomas, but to the intellectualism of Godfrey, Godfrey of Fontaine. Almost as if two extremes, intellectualism and voluntarism, were the only options, right? And today, we, the horns of the dilemma, we do something similar with so-called determinism, compatibilism, and libertarianism. This is why I insisted before that Thomas, whether you agree with him or not, had forged a middle way. But such was the historical context, the sort of swinging of the pendulum out of which Duns Scotus developed his voluntaristic understanding of free will. So consider with me um, John Duns Scotus. <clears throat> we said that Scotus is principally responding to Godfrey of Fontaine. His concern, Scotus's concern, and probably rightly so, is that if the will is merely and passively determined by the practical intellect to its course of action, then the acts of the will are reducible to a necessary act of nature, wherein it becomes the nature of the will to act of necessity in submission to the determination of the intellect. Thus, the act of the will itself would be natural and irrational rather than issuing forth from a free and rational choice. Whatever may be said of, of the freedom of the intellect, the will itself would not be truly open to alternative effects or, or have the spontaneous um, power of choice, but would be necessitated to act a certain way according to the dictates of the intellect. This is Scotus's concern as he reacts to the, um, to the intellectualism of Godfrey. This leads Scotus to some truly innovative conclusions. He begins to, to reconsider um, Aristotle's criteria for what distinguishes an irrational, natural power from a truly rational power. Now, Scotus was meditating upon a portion of text found well, found in Book 10, Chapter 2 of Aristotle's Metaphysics, but it reads like this. So Aristotle. All those potencies that are rational are open to contrary determinations, and those which are irrational are each determined to one thing. For example, what is hot is capable of heating, whereas the medical arts, by which he means um, knowledge of, of medicine and so forth, 
um, the medical arts are concerned with both sickness and health. <clears throat> Aristotle is here identifying that which and that by which an irrational or natural power or potency can be distinguished from those that are rational, free and rational, those that are capable of acting rationally from those that, are, that act without reason by a necessity of nature. And the specific difference, according to Aristotle, is that a rational potency is open to opposites. It's open to alternative determinations to make a choice between things. Whereas an irrational potency is one that is determined by nature or by natural instinct to one act, only one effect. So to use Aristotle's examples, right? Heat will, by its very nature, affect warmth. Heat, something hot, will by its very nature warm and only warm such that it, could be, it would be against its nature of heat to cause coldness, much less to, to choose right, between causing coldness or, or, or warmth. However, rational potencies are capable of alternative acts and effects. Aristotle uses the, medical, um, the example of medical knowledge and the way such rational knowledge of the body and of medicine and and, and illnesses and, and so forth can be used for more than one sort of outcome. Bernard Lonergan explains this. He says, what is hot heats, what is cold cools, but the doctor may kill or cure for the same knowledge may be the cause of both. Still, the doctor cannot both kill and cure the same patient with respect to the same illness. Hence, knowledge as a cause implies the intervention of another factor that selects between alternatives, whether the doctor will heal or, or uh, cure or kill, right? Um, and so he says, for more than one possible practical, um, no, this, this other factor is the choice, right? Making a choice between these alternatives. How to use that knowledge. By the same rational knowledge then, the doctor knows both a thing and its opposite, the thing and its privation, both A and not A, health and sickness, and is therefore able by the same rational power to use such knowledge for more than one possible outcome, more than one possible effect, practical outcome. So a natural power is such that, that it, is, it is determined, a natural power is such that it is determined by nature to only one act and one effect, whereas a rational power is such that is determined by, is, is determined, it is such that is open, let's say, it is open to contrary alternative determinations. Scotus takes this distinction to an extreme and he concludes from Aristotle's definition or rather his understanding of Aristotle's definition that a rational power cannot in any way then be determined by a natural, orient, by a nature, by a natural orientation or tendency. Scotus doesn't seem to make the kind of distinction here that Thomas makes 
between will and free will or its ultimate end and the particular means toward that end. Remember, Thomas uh, maintained that the will as will naturally desires goodness itself as its universal object and ultimate end and is therefore naturally and necessarily ordered to the good. Whereas the will as free will remains appetitively indeterminate and open with respect to the particular goods that are merely potential but not necessary means to that end. But remember, Scotus is not interacting with the nuances of Thomas's distinction, but with a mere, uh, more extreme intellectualism of Godfrey. And he fears that if the will be determined in any respect by nature, then it will necessarily be determined to one thing and not another, and therefore cannot be rational according to Aristotle's definition. So for Scotus, the will must have an absolute nature, maybe we could say, an absolute nature that is not ordered by nature in relation to anything. It's only nature, I'm simplifying a little bit, but it's only nature is to have an absolutely open and equally undetermined potency for opposite effects. Its nature is to be absolutely indifferent. Otherwise, according to Scotus, it cannot be rational and therefore could not be free, open to contrary effects. Again, for Scotus and the voluntaristic trajectory after him, free will is presumed to require the will's absolute indifference. Does that sound like any theological viewpoint? It's it's that of the Armenians, though Scotus was not an Armenian, let's not say that, but but that would be anachronistic, but it is it becomes the view of the Armenian. Scotus's innovations here go further. He is critical of the common interpret the common interpretation, which which would have included Thomas's understanding of the rationale that um, lies behind Aristotle's distinction. So how to interpret Aristotle's distinction here. <clears throat> Aristotle was the, on this particular point, and his text was the authority of which the tradition had to deal with. Um, and Scotus is critical of the common interpretation of, of what Aristotle means. So commonly, it was commonly said that Aristotle's rationale seems to rest upon, uh, his rationale of how to distinguish a, a rational act from a necessary or act of nature, right? An irrational act. The, it was commonly said that, that his rationale seemed to rest upon an argument concerning formal causality. We've already said something about this um, in relation to Aquinas. In non-rational creatures, the principle of motion flows from their natural form. In other words, what is hot heats. What they are by nature determines what they do and how they act. And since contrary forms cannot exist in the same, same subject without a change of nature in, in non-rational creatures, then non-rational things cannot produce contrary effects. A cause cannot give what it does not have. However, in rational creatures with rational powers, the situation is formally different. Whereas the motion or change 
of non-rational creatures is limited by their natural form, rational creatures, as we said, has the, have the rational power to and have the intellectual ability by this process called abstraction to possess in the knowing mind the intellectual form of both a thing and its opposite, health and sickness, for example. And so Aristotle's rationale for why rational potencies are uniquely open to opposite effects seems to rest upon an argument concerning formal causality. An agent that acts with reason, being intellectually informed with respect to a thing and its opposite, is thereby uniquely capable of bringing about contrary effects. Once again, this, this means that just as our intellectual desires are grounded upon intellectual apprehensions, so also the rationality and freedom of the will is grounded upon the rationality and the freedom of the intellect. We saw this in, in Aquinas, the, the intellect and its ability to present formally distinct objects to the will, formally distinct objects which the will can then form its choice. This is Thomas's view. Duns Scotus, however, finds this common interpretation of Aristotle's reasoning wholly inadequate. His primary objection is that this interpretation would appear to imply that the intellect is the only truly rational power of the soul inasmuch as it alone concerns the formal knowledge of opposites. And he thinks that this would, in fact, reduce the will to the category of a natural or non-rational power and therefore would not be free, according to Aristotle's definition. So this is untenable for Scotus, because intellectual knowledge alone does not possess the potency to produce anything, much less opposite effects. That is, not until, not until it is actually determined to one or another effect by the choice of the will. And therefore, he says, it is the will and not the intellect that is ultimately rational and free. Still wanting to claim Aristotle as an authority, Scotus argues that this would, th that argues that this is what Aristotle really means. And the only reason that the philosopher seems to emphasize, because he does seem to emphasize the formal role of the intellect is because, well, the operations of the intellect are just more familiar to us and so he he emphasizes that. And he says, because the forms of things in the intellect are, well, they're necessary, though they're not sufficient, a sufficient condition for volition. But ultimately, he says, Aristotle must be referring properly to the will as rational and not the intellect as the primary rational power of the soul because it alone has the power of choice that is actually open to opposites. Again. Rational and non-rational potencies may be distinguished by, way, by, by the way in which they elicit their acts respectively. Sorry, I had an ant crawling on my, <clears throat> I couldn't let it go. Let me, let me say that again. Rational and non-rational potencies may be distinguished 
by the way in which they elicit their respect, their acts, respectively, so that the non-rational powers are determined by nature and rational powers are not. This, he says, only truly belongs to the will. Listen, listen to Scotus. For either, one, a potency is by its own nature determined to act so that, so, so, that, so far as it concerns... Let me start over. A potency is by its own nature determined to act so that, so far as itself is concerned, it cannot fail to act when not impeded from without. Or, so second, second kind, it is not of itself so determined, but can perform either this act or its opposite, or can either act or not act at all. A potency of the first sort is commonly called nature, whereas the one of the second sort is called will. Hence, the primary division of active potencies is into nature and will, a distinction Aristotle had in mind, he says, when he assumed there, he assumed there were two incidental or per accidents efficient causes. Okay, I want you to notice from this quote, if you, if you caught it, two things. First, Scotus reduces Aristotle's non-rational, rational distinction to two categories. You catch it? The one is nature. The other one's will. Nature and will, respectively. Secondly, Scotus shifts the focus of Aristotle's argument from formal causality to efficient causality. Now, I want you to consider the implications, really innovations, wrapped up in both of these moves. First, Scotus reduces Aristotle's non-rational, rational distinction to the categories of nature and will, respectively. And by reducing all rational potencies to the category of the will and all else to nature, a curious, a curious, um, uh, implication and conclusion develops here, namely that the intellect falls under Scotus's category of nature or non-rational potencies. And in fact, this is not lost on Scotus. It's embraced by him when he says, intellect is determined by nature to understand and does not have in its power to both understand and not understand, or as regards propositional knowledge, where contrary acts are possible, it does not have the power to both assent and descent. Let's see if we can unpack this a little bit. He's saying that although the intellect may, may indeed possess a knowledge of opposites, it is not thereby open to opposite effects apart from the will determining it to one thing or another. And moreover, he says, the intellect cannot understand and not understand the way that the will can will and not will. And Scotus maintains, the intellect does not have the power to assent and not dissent to the truth the way that the will has the power to accept or refuse the things that are presented to it. And therefore, the intellect is not a truly rational power like the will, but simply acts according to a necessity of nature. 
again, Scotus is missing Thomas's distinction between the necessary assent of the intellect as it regards first principles and reasons freedom with respect to the particular conclusions and deductions drawn from those principles. But he's not interacting with Thomas. <clears throat> not in any significant, meaningful way here. In any event, the conclusion Scotus comes to is that the will is the only truly rational power of the soul, properly understood. In fact, he says this, the intellect is, a rational, is, is rational only in the qualified sense that it is a precondition for the act of a rational potency, the will, the will which, is under, which is undetermined as regards its own act, elicits its own act, and through its elicited act, it determines the intellect insofar as the latter has a causal bearing on some external happening. In other words, the intellect may fall under the heading of will or rational only insofar as its own act is determined by the truly rational acts of the will. And so he concludes, if rational is understood to mean with reason, then the will alone is properly rational, as it alone truly has to do with opposites, both with regard to its own act and with regard to the acts it controls. So according to the voluntaristic innovation of Scotus, will and not the intellect is that, so you see the contrast now with Thomas even, the, the will and not the intellect is that which grounds its own freedom. The intellect may be considered a rational power only by virtue of its relation to the will and not the other way around. <clears throat> Second, Scotus shifts the focus from formal causality to efficient causality. Um, truly a metaphysical explanation of this is beyond the scope of this lecture. Um, but the result significance of this move is this, that Scotus not only demotes the intellect to a natural power, but also ascribes an active power, a very active power to the will, whereby it is said that it is able to move itself as its own efficient cause. It gives a certain um, absoluteness to its own active power. So in voluntaristic fashion, Scotus maintains that the will does not have, it, the will does not have to and often does not follow the last judgment of the practical intellect. In fact, although intellectual apprehension, knowledge, is a necessary condition for the will's act of choosing, it is not a sufficient condition. Alan Walter, scholar of Duns Scotus, remarks, as an active potency, the will, for Scotus, the will is the principal or perhaps exclusive cause of its own volition. Tobias Hoffman writes, with this novel move or this novel theory, Scotus shifts the focus from the freedom of the will in relation to intellect toward the freedom of the will considered in itself. 
The ultimate reason why the will wills what it wills lies in the will itself. And so the will for Scotus is an active potency unlike every other active potency. Finding something analogous only in the will of God. Ordinarily, um, ordinarily, an account must be given for what reduces an act of potency to act. Something, it can't be its own cause in that ultimate sense. Something else must reduce something, its potency to act. And so there has to be an account for that. But not, Scotus says, no account is needed when it comes to free will. Neither in God nor in man, Scotus maintains, the will is an active principle distinct from the entire class of active principles. It seems stupid then to apply general principles about active principles to the will, since there are no instances of how it behaves in anything other than the will itself. So it's in a class all by its own. It doesn't play by the same rules. Scotus says that the will is the exception to the rule because it is the one kind of, of potency, of active potency. Um, it's a one of a kind active potency. It, it is a, he says, a positive entity or quasi form approxim approximating pure actuality. He says it is a superabundant sufficiency based on unlimited actuality. Finding something analogous only in the will of God, which is pure act and entirely self-moving. That is true of God, that his, his will, he is his will, and is entirely self-moving. However, as a matter of criticism here, <clears throat> it should be pointed out that at the very point at which Scotus desires to draw an analogy with the absolute self-motion of the divine will, just as God's will is entirely self-moved, the human will is self-moved. That's his an, an analogy. And that's, there's no other thing in creation like it. Um, the only analogy is the, is the divine will. But at that very point, at which Scotus desires to draw an analogy with that absolute self-motion of the divine will may in fact be the exact point at which God's will is most unlike our will. Thomas put it this way. So Thomas, by way of contrast, says a will of which the principal object is a good outside of itself must be moved by another. But the object of the divine will is his own goodness, which is his essence. Hence, since the will of God is his essence, it is not moved by another than itself, but by itself alone. Think about what he's saying. God himself, himself as his own goodness, is the object of his own will. And therefore, he is not moved or set in motion by another. This is precisely where God is God and we are not. This is precisely where God is unique and where the analogy to our will breaks down because the ultimate good or the ultimate object of our will is a goodness that is outside of ourselves. Our will, 
contrary to SCOTUS, must necessarily be set in motion then by a good outside of ourselves before it is able to move itself. And this other, this outside of us, must be the goodness of things presented to our will by the intellect. And yet for Thomas, for Thomas, this does not require, as Scotus fears, this does not require that we hold to an intellectualist or determinist interpretation. As we've seen, there is a way to understand free choice that consists of a joint act of both the intellect and the will such that both determine the other in a certain respect and yet are simultaneously the spontaneous principle of their own acts, intellect and will respectively. Okay, in the time we have left, let's ask the question now, where does the reformed tradition and the confessional, our confessional heritage fall in relation to the, these two historical and theological trajectories. <clears throat> For many years, the narrative on this particular question, the narrative among historians had been that the Protestant Reformation arose from the nominalist and voluntarist, especially scotistic, roots of the late Middle Ages the so-called genealogy of modernity is still pre prevalent within the radical orthodoxy movement and the narrative promulgated ad nauseum by John Milbank. But we would be hard pressed to find a strain, even a strain of voluntarism within the reformed tradition in any meaningful sense. Instead, the reformed consistently argued that the voluntarists of their day were the Arminians and the Socinians, not to mention the Papists at the time of the Reformation. Because both Arminians and Socinians fear that any and all forms of necessity or determinism are repugnant to free will, whether it be in relation to the intellect or in relation to the divine decree, they adopt a voluntarist view of the will that regards it as absolutely indifferent. That is, that it is equally open to opposite effects and indifferent even, regard, uh, even toward the judgment of the practical intellect. And the Arminian goes further than Scotus, though. They, they go further in a libertarian direction by also regarding the will as absolutely independent with respect to the divine will so as to go even further in making the will, the human will, the autonomous master of its own acts. And as such, the Reformed tradition is no more voluntaristic than it is Arminian or Socinian. But if we are merely speaking about, let's say, certain tendencies or certain emphases on the one side or the other, intellect or will, intellectualism or voluntarism, it could be said that the Reformed tradition tends in an intellectualist direction in the same way that we might justly speak of the intellectualistic tendencies of someone like Thomas. Um, so you'll read, 
for instance, in uh, our, our own Nehemiah Cox. Um, he gives an intellectualist emphasis in the very brief, not elaborated upon, just very brief remarks uh, that he makes in his um, Vindicii Veritatis. He writes, this liberty of man's free will, this liberty consists in a rational spontaneity. He, that is man, acts freely, that is under no coaction, but but doth what the last does what the last and practical judgment of his own understanding dictates to him. Um, without saying more and not perhaps reading him here in context of other broader statements within our own tradition, you might say, well, that sounds like intellectualism. It's certainly not voluntarism. I would suggest it's just he, he just doesn't elaborate. We would be, we should be rather wary of claims of intellectualism in our tradition in the narrow and proper sense as something akin to modern day determinism or compatibilism where the will is passive and either has no self-determining power of its own or is reduced to morally necessitated acts without coercion. <clears throat> Historically, we tend to find among the Reformed tradition the sort of middle way, or I would argue, the sort of middle way that was characteristic of Thomas. Whereas the intellectualist grounds freedom in the intellect and reduces the will to an act of nature, the voluntarist grounds freedom in the will and reduces the intellect to an act of nature. And I think the Reformed following Thomas consistently ground freedom in, the, in a joint act of intellect and will, wherein the free and contingent deliberation of the intellect determines the will. And the free and contingent election and agreement of the will simultaneously determines the last judgment of the practical intellect. And so, not only would it be wholly inaccurate to reduce the Reformed tradition to voluntarism, I would maintain that it is misleading and inadequate to reduce it to intellectualism or even a form of determinism. I'm convinced, for instance, that this was Zanke's understanding, who, cites, who actually cites Thomas, when he locates the act of free choice in a mutual concurrence between the deliberation of the intellect in presenting a choice and the good pleasure of the will in freely choosing. Another example would be Petrus von Maastricht. Free choice, he says, is a power of the intellect and the will. The intellect judges and shows the will what is good, and the will decides upon and commands what it is shown in a relatively indeterminate, relatively indeterminate and contingent way. Early, earlier on in, in, in his uh, third volume, I believe it is, <clears throat> I'm looking at my foot, footnotes, his third volume, earlier on in his third volume, 
he echoes Thomas's distinction between will as will and will as free will. He says this, the will is the power of desiring or rejecting the good or evil, which is occupied with regard to an end necessarily and with regard to means indifferently, at least by its nature. From both the faculty of perceiving and of desiring arises then free choice, which is nothing other than the power of acting from counsel or rational complacency. And even more plainly, he says a little later in the, volume, in the same volume, against the uh, Cartesian um, novelties of modernity, he says, free choice, which until now, according to all, was simultaneously in the intellect and the will. Von Maastricht says here that according to all, I, I interpret him to be saying that according to all within the Reformed tradition, um, maybe he's actually looking even further back, but at least perhaps within the Reformed tradition, free choice simultaneously consists of an act of the intellect and an act of the will. He then proceeds to show that the will does not follow the judgment of the intellect slavishly or passively. Otherwise, he says, there would be no intelligible sense in which to speak of its depravity, much less of its renewal. It's, it, just, it just is, it just does what the intellect says. He says, no, it actually has a mind of its own. Um, it is and, and may be depraved and need to be renewed. Um, nor could we speak of its willful, we could speak of willfully, willful presumptuous sins in contrast to mere sins of ignorance. If it just slavishly follows the intellect. <clears throat> Samuel Rutherford makes similar observations when he says, if the last judgment of the understanding necessarily and of itself determined the will, grace would become mere suasion. Nor would any internal grace be necessary to cure the will, to remove the darkness of the mind and instruct it in what is ignorant. Oh, to, <clears throat> let me read that sentence again. Um, to remove the darkness of the mind and instruct it in what it is ignorant of would be sufficient. The will must be renewed that it may choose the greatest good. Nor doth it follow from the wills following the last practical judgment that the understanding only needs to be sanctified and not the will, since this last practical judgment is the work of the will. In fact, in its corrupted state, the will often acts against the intellect's better judgment. And yet, in the end, it never acts without judgment or without some practical rationalization which it finds agreeable given its particular moral propensity. So, out of time, so by way of conclusion, 
We've considered a brief history of how intellectualism and volunteerism arose in the late, in the late 13th century, focusing especially upon the volunteerism of Duns Scotus, and we briefly considered where our own confessional tradition falls in relation to these things. It was my uh, aim to show that the Reformed tradition, though clearly more intellectualist than voluntarist, uh, such that a voluntaristic tendency, in fact, tended to be associated with the Remonstrants, the Arminians, and the Socinians, and the like. Even so, the Reformed tradition might be better described according to Thomas's middle way, that continues to view free choice as a simultaneous act of both the intellect and the will, wherein the intellect moves the will to move itself or determines the will in the very act whereby it determines itself. And as we shall see, this particular understanding of the freedom of the will and the intricate relation to the intellect that it entails, that it remains intact in whatsoever state of man is under consideration. But in addition to this natural freedom of the will, there is a moral consideration to be had here as well concerning the habits of the will that incline it to order or disorder even its appetites in one way or another. And it's to that additional aspect of freedom that we will turn our attention in the very last lecture. Thank you.